Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. A little bit later on, we'll get to know Ore Agbaje Williams. She is a British Nigerian writer from London who has written for Galdom and Glamour, among many others. Her new novel, The Three of Us, now available wherever fine books are sold, tells the story of long standing tensions between a husband, his wife, and her best friend that finally come to a breaking point in this sharp domestic comedy of manners told brilliantly over the course of just one day. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet Joy Fielding, the New York Times bestselling author who was called an ingenious master of domestic suspense. She joins me to talk about her novel, The Housekeeper. It's a suspenseful story about a woman who hires a housekeeper to care for her aging parents, only to watch as she takes over their lives. First, though, let's meet Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton. Samantha Fish is a guitarist, a songwriter, and singer who was voted by GuitarWorld.com as one of the 10 best blues guitarists in the world. But I think calling her a blues guitarist is just a little misleading because in a career that spans over a decade, the Kansas City, Missouri musician's music features multiple genres, including blues, but also rock, country, funk, bluegrass, and even some ballads. Jesse Dayton boasts an exceptional resume as an acclaimed solo recording artist, collaborator with everyone from Johnny Cash to Waylon Jennings and Duff McKagan. He's the touring guitarist for the seminal punk band X, teammate with Rob Zombie on the soundtracks for his iconic horror films, and he's a radio show host on Gimme Country. They've teamed up for a new album, Death Wish Blues, a blend of blues, soul, punk, and funk, recorded mostly live in a very intense 10 days. In this interview, we talk about life on the road, recording at a legendary studio, and the three haze that every musician should know. Here's Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton, who joined me via Zoom from Missouri and Texas. Dark shadow standing in a corner, big party but no one there to warn her. Your kiss is like a death wish. He says we can keep it undercover. She knows one touch will put her under. Your kiss is like a death wish. Samantha, tell me about uh, the first time that you met Jesse, and did you know then that there was a bond, that there would be something musical happening after that? Um, well, we we met a long time ago, um, and I've always really admired Jesse for uh, his his diversity and what he you know I mean he he's got an incredible solo band, um, but he does a lot of work with with other artists you know through many different genres. Um, he's got a really storied career <laughs> and, um, and he's worked in cinema, you know, just all these different mediums. And I, I've, I've just kind of been a, a fan from afar for years and knew him through, you know, knuckleheads back in the day, we used to play at the same club in Kansas city. And, um, so I reconnected with him last year when he came through new Orleans to play a show. And, you know, prior to that, we'd kind of had this idea floating around in my camp about a collaborative album with this sort of aesthetic. And, you know, and I wanted to once I saw Jesse, it was like a light bulb moment. And I thought, wow, this is this is the guy we have to do it. And Jesse, what is it about uh, Samantha's guitar playing, her songwriting, uh, the whole thing uh, that made you think, wow, this would be a great fit? The first time. I heard, I actually heard Sam before I met Sam or mm -hmm. saw Sam. 
I was listening back. I was listening backstage at Knuckleheads, and I was like, "Who's playing guitar down there?" Um, because it totally it was great, and it grabbed my attention, and it was kind of a, a holy, you know what moment. Mm-hmm. And um, but I knew that you know this would be a great opportunity for us to both do something outside our prospective solo careers, and you know we're genre benders both of us but we both share a you know a, a massive you know nerd level love for the blues you know <laughs> and um so no matter what chord progressions you're listening to on the record you can hear the freddie king licks and you can hear stuff like that so that was exciting uh, you know thinking about what we could do and for both of you, what is it then about playing the blues that has embedded itself uh, in your your uh, musical careers? Well, for me, blues music is, yeah, I grew up in Kansas City, so it's mm-hmm. kind of a one-two punch. Like, Kansas City is really well known for, you know, its tradition in jazz and blues. And when I was just starting out, um, all my favorite rock and roll guitar players, thats I found out they were all inspired by blues. And turns out it's the foundation of all modern music. And, you know, I so when I was going out in Kansas City cutting my teeth as a kid, it was like, if you want to sit in with these bands, you got to figure out the form, you got to figure out the tradition. And, you know, and for me, I just found my voice, um, being able to express myself um, within within those solo forms and just, you know, you have space to really utilize your guitar as a voice. You know, I'm not just learning like guitar parts, you know, or riffs and runs, like I'm really using it for, you know, full emotion and uh, self-expression. And it it gave me a voice, you know, to me, it gave me a voice and I, I feel really, you know, deeply connected to it. When I do a solo in that, in that vein, it's like, you know, I feel it and, and it just makes me happy. It's like my happy place, you know? Um, but every, every album I've done, you know, even though it's kind of like expanded some different genres, it sort of has a foothold, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that. And I, I, f- I feel like it's, it's our job as artists to, you know, I, like, I love the blues. I talk about the blues, but I want to take it somewhere new and unique for me because that's my job as an artist, but it's always there. And Jesse, was there a, a record or a performance that set you on this path? Well, when I was a kid, a guy named Claire, Clifford Anton walked into this real toilet dive bar that I was playing in. And I was probably 15 years old. And Clifford owned Antone's Home of the Blues in Austin, where Stevie Ray and Jimmy Bond and all those guys started out. So he drives up in this limousine and he's got his seven foot tall, uh, you know, got bodyguard with him. And he looks kind of like some New Orleans mafioso guy. And he's like, hey, kid, I really like your guitar. He loved young guitar players. Clifford mm-hmm. did. So he gave me five records and when I was 15. And it was, you know, it was Muddy Waters and Body Buddy Guy and Slim Harpo and, and you know, and so I learned all that stuff and then called him. And then that was kind of what set me on the track to being a guitar player. And I feel like I've kind of come full circle playing with Sam. I feel like I'm back to my old tricks again. I feel like a kid. 
every every time we play together. I feel like I can't believe they're letting us do this. You're listening to Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton on The Richard Krause Show. Their new album, Death Wish Blues, is available wherever fine music is sold. Blues is in the title, but it's blues, it's soul, it's it's funk. Uh, there's some punk rock in there. I think there's a little bit of everything. Um, tell me about physically... Uh, writing the songs. I know some are covers, but some are original. So tell me a little bit about uh, writing the songs and how they developed over time in the studio. Or were they done on stages live in front of an audience? I'm not sure how you work. Well, once we, so we finally met up in New Orleans last year and we were supposed to be co-writing, but we were really just getting to, to know each other. And so we started kind of woodshedding ideas um, but then we ended up going into the studio to cut the, the EP for the Stardust sessions. We didn't know it was going to be an EP. It was like the label ended up liking it, wanting to put it put it out. We didn't know what we were doing. We did it. <laughs> but we were just seeing if we had some chemistry. And so we chose a couple covers to go in and just, you know, uh, yeah, to, to shed and to see if, see if we fit. Yeah, and yeah. once we got once we realized like, wow, we actually like really can play together and we have our voices sound nice together. We started writing and collaborating. And a lot of it was done kind of like this over Zoom or, um, you know, just sending song ideas back and forth. Like I, you know, Jesse'd get an idea for uh, a hook and he'd send it to me and I go, oh, OK, and, and we'd expand on it. And, you know, I, I think we spent, uh, you know, several months just kind of shooting ideas back. And we were we both worked really, really hard on this mm -hmm. and, and spent pretty much I mean, we're both touring musicians, so we were always on the road you know, but in all of our free time working on this and, you know, just kind of staying in constant contact and, uh, you know, working on these songs. So it was a lot of just shooting it back and forth and, um, and working it out from there. Jesse, how long have you been using technology in that way to send digital files back and forth be, uh, between one another? I mean, as soon as they started, you know, doing it, I mean, I, I jumped in on the on the fund. But listen, I mean, we do we do like people ask, what do you start with the lyrics? Do you start with the mm -hmm. melody? How, do you you know how what's your process? And it's like with Samantha, we will use all everything at our you know every knife in the in the kitchen man right. <laughs> however we can and uh you know sometimes she send me a little voicemail going din -din 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 -din. And I was like, oh, wow, that's catchy, you know. You recorded at Rick Danko's studio in Woodstock. Yeah, we were at Applehead Studio up in uh, Woodstock, New York. And mm -hmm. there's a lot to be inspired by up there. I mean, we every day you look out the window, we can see Rick Danko's old house, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's that, that whole area, I'd never really been, but... It was the perfect place to make this record because there really isn't a, a ton to be distracted by. It's like a, a one street drag. And I mean, there's stuff to do, but um, like there's there's bars and restaurants and everything. But it is kind of, it's, it, it definitely has a small town feel. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's not like going to L.A. or New York City where you're totally distracted. Like, you know, there's so many things at your fingertips there. You might be distracted like we were out in the woods. 
making this yeah. album. And I, I think it was probably the perfect place for us. I remember being in Woodstock once years ago and seeing an amazing band and a little place on that one strip. You know, I remember beers were a buck and cigarettes from the machine were a buck. So that tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> and uh, the band was incredible, uh, had such a great time. The next day, went to New York and went to the Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert. And, you know, it's George Harrison and all these other players playing uh, Bob Dylan songs at Mad uh, Madison Square Garden. And it was the same band playing backup for all the acts. They all lived in Woodstock, apparently, and warmed up the night before at the Tinker Street Cafe. It was an incredible night. We're total fans. Me and Sam loaded up the car and drove over to Big Pink. And, yeah, you know, I mean, I was geeking out the whole time. It's Albert Grossman's house. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, Dylan slept there, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was vibey and it definitely influenced the record. You do a cover of Brand New Cadillac. Now, it's an older song. The version that I love is from London Calling, the Clash version, uh, but you put your own spin on it. One, two, three, four. Do you feel an, an extra sort of pressure because, you know, people know it so well and people love it so much? I I don't necessarily feel pressure. Um, I just, I feel like it's like, how do we make this good for what we have to offer? You right. know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to do a perfect impression because I'm never going to do better than what that song, I'm never going to do the clash better than the clash, <laughs> you know, or Vince Taylor better than, than he could. So it's like, the only thing I can do is bring my tools and my my you know sensibilities to the song and try to create something that's unique and something people want to listen to and um i think jesse and i just we wanted to with with those three songs um you're referring to as the uh the stardust sessions ep mm. and um jesse and i really wanted to just kind of showcase like before the original album came out like you know what are we about like let's let's pick three songs three covers you know to, to kind of like um you know, set up this album to give people a taste of what we're going to deliver next. And, you know, we wanted to go with something raw and aggressive and that was brand new Cadillac. Yeah. It's an incredible song. Yeah. And, and yeah. Jesse, tell me what uh, those songs mean to you in terms of, of telegraphing what comes next. I mean, uh, there's raw power on this thing, but it's, it, it's also, there's a lot of soul to it. There's a, there's, there's a lot happening in the grooves uh, of this record. So tell me a little bit about um, what it means to you, what those song selections mean to you. Well, I mean, all those records that I grew up on that I loved uh, by rock bands, they would dabble in everything. I mean, it would be blues and punk and reggae and country and folk music and acoustic stuff. So we kind of did that. You know, we did a Magic Sam full on boogie, yeah. you know, Texas boogie version of that. And we did, you know, this acoustic Towns Van Zant thing and then The Clash um, and you know, I thought if that was our foundation, that's pretty solid. I mean, you know, and then we started writing songs that we felt like we could do whatever we wanted. And, you know, sure, it might be, a, you know, 
whatever. And we might be challenging bending genres or whatever people want to call it. But really for us, we're just writing for ourselves and we're just, and you know, we just want to do something that we think would be fun for ourselves and hopefully everyone else digs it, you know, cause you start getting into that whole second guessing thing and, and you kind of, you know, you can't win the cool contest, man. <laughs> You're listening to Samantha fish and Jesse Dayton on the Richard Krause show. Their new album, death wish blues is available now wherever you buy fine music. And Jesse, I love a, a quote that I read and I think it's from musician magazine and uh, you said, when I was learning how to play guitar, a guy by the name of Granville Cleveland said to me, man, I'm going to show you how to play the three Hays." And mm -hmm. your, your bit of advice was learn how to play the three Hays." So just tell us what that is. Well, you know, I was a 15-year-old kid, never picked up a guitar before. And this was like the cool older black dude who played with Edgar Winter and Johnny Winter's wow. white trash band and and he you know that was from they they lived they grew up two blocks from me in Boma, Texas. And um he showed me Hey Hey My My by Neil Young, which gave me this whole kind of minor folk thing. Right. And then he showed me Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix, which was this whole blues you know, thing. And then he showed me, Hey, good looking by Hank Williams. <laughs> which, you know, you got to throw a good, you know, honky tonk song in there too. So I've been doing versions of those three songs my entire career, basically, you know, um, but Neil Young and, and, uh, you know, Hendrix and Hank Williams, not a bad first three songs, you know, I love cause you know, you can hear all those influences on Death Wish Blues. A lot of the uh, influences on this record were just, we went, we didn't even devise them to be this way. They just came out. I mean, like hearing Sam sing, uh, like we both really got to get out of our thing, you know? I think mean, we're really taking chances with this music, you know? We're not just feeding them cake, man. We're not just, <laughs> you know? It, we could have gone in and played a bunch of Texas blues and, you know, we could have done this paint by numbers traditionalist thing. Um, and it would have been so easy and so uneventful. We probably wouldn't be here talking to you mm -hmm. right now. So um, I, Sam's inspiring to play with because it, it makes me want to be, you know, I've learned a lot of stuff. I learned, Like the other day, Sam had me singing like Curtis Mayfield <laughs> and like, like here I am trying to do this whole kind of falsetto soft right you know, stylistics kind of Philly soul thing. And I never get to do that. I mean, it's so, uh, uh, you know, it's exciting, man. Tell me a little bit about what it's like being on the road for months at a time. I mean, you know, the shows are exhilarating, but then there's 22 hours until the next one. Yeah. I mean, you, you gotta just, I mean, the travel between like, n nobody sees the actual effort that goes into mm -hmm you know, what we do and, and what other artists out there are doing. I mean, and that's part of the, the show business thing. You don't want to give everybody a peek behind the curtain because yeah. it's not as glamorous as you might think. But, <laughs> you know, we we definitely, we, we work hard. The travel is, it can be grueling at times, but, you know, you got to find time to take care of yourself and, um, you know, just keep your keep your focus on the show. We're really lucky that we get to go and 
you know, one city to to the next and play for people and they show up, you know, it's, it's, it's a gift and we're really fortunate. And I, I feel, you know, I've, I'm moved every night when we go out on stage and it's like, wow, there's a lot, there's people here, you know, that's, it's a beautiful feeling, you know, to be able to share that, you know, your, you know, your, your passion with people. So I, you know, I'm really excited about it. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I think the the best movie that I've ever seen about life on the road is the Rolling Stones film, the title which can't say on the radio. If you ever have a chance to see it, uh, have a look because I think you'll probably relate to it in some ways. Totally. I mean, that's what I mean. Like people kind of have this this amount this you know what they already perceive to be your lifestyle on the road, and a lot of it's like we're living for that two hours on stage every night. Mm-hmm. That was Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton. Check out their new album, Death Wish Blues, wherever you buy fine music. Let's get to know Ore Agbaje Williams. She is a British Nigerian writer from London who has written for Galdom and Glamour and many other places. Her new novel, The Three of Us, now available wherever fine books are sold, tells the story of long-standing tensions between a husband, his wife, and her best friend that finally come to a breaking point in this sharp domestic comedy of manners told brilliantly over the course of just one day. Ore Agbaje Williams joined me via Zoom from London. This book takes place over the course of one day. Tell me a little bit about making the decision to create this story, which is quite complicated, told from three different perspectives over the course of one day. Uh, <laughs> it, it it almost feels to me like it's a bit restrictive, but perhaps it's not. Maybe it it, it opens you up because it is so focused. Um, I think because I knew that I was going to be talking from. Uh, writing it from first person from all three perspectives I thought how long does anybody want to stay in one person's head Um, and how interesting is that for people to be in there for a really long time or to go back to someone so like if I'd said done the wife the husband the best friend and then the wife again and again I thought that's quite boring Um, and I also love the idea of sort of a pressure cooker of time and the idea that over the course of one evening they're drinking a lot of wine and therefore all these things are coming out and they're having all these sort of um, discussions. So um, yeah, I like the idea of that pressure cooker. And I just thought I wouldn't want to stay in somebody's head for too long. So if I just keep it short and sweet <laughs> and keep it to one day, that'll make it a lot easier on the reader and also a lot easier for me to read through over and over again. <laughs> I suppose that's true. And yeah. you also, you tell the story from three different points of view. Uh, did you write it? You know, he said, she said, they said, or did you write all of the wife's parts first and then uh, how did how did you structure that and then keep everything kind of straight in your head while you were doing it yeah so I I started with the wife I didn't actually know that I was going to do the husband and the best friend (laughs) until I got maybe halfway through the wife and I was like hmm again that thing of like her voice is interesting but I'm kind of getting a bit bored of her like I need to hear what other people think um and I was particularly excited to hear what the best friend thought um Mm -hmm. and also then what the husband thought and I, I thought to myself the best friend has to come at the end because we have these two really interesting depictions of her from the wife's perspective and the husband's perspective. From the wife, you know, she's a little bit, she's a little bit much, but the wife loves her. And for the husband, she's like the worst person to ever exist. Um, so <laughs> I thought we need her to come at the end as kind of a climax. And then obviously the way the book, with the way the book ends, she needs to be that sort of, um, that third act that sort of brings everything together and throws everything into chaos. And as you're, in the midst of writing a book like this, and then you have that revelation, it of course changes everything. It, uh, I don't know if it changes the story really, but it certainly changes the way you tell the story. 
And I wonder when I hear that, uh, you were a commissioning editor uh, at HarperCollins for a long time. So I would assume that means that you really understand pitches. And I wonder, as a writer, if you thought to yourself, I think you were being a little self-depreciating when you're saying, well, I can't stand to listen to this voice anymore. I think, was it partially in your head? You were saying, oh, if I was being pitched this, the 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 best pitch would be these three different points of view. Um, I would I would love to think that I had my professional hat on and that's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but realistically, um, I had written a couple of other things before and the most recent thing I'd sent to my agent, my literary agent, Nikki, She'd been like, I don't get this. Um, and so I was like, I just need to write something. She was like, I just need a first draft. I was like, me too. <laughs> um, so I was just thinking to myself, like, what is it What is it that I can do that I can write that will be interesting enough and sharp enough and whatever? Um, and writing that was also sort of how I found my voice. But I think there definitely was an element of me maybe bringing in a bit of my, um, my time as an editor in thinking about what I compared it to um mm. and so some of the comments I think I gave her were um The Dinner by Herman Coke um and I think a little bit of Such a Fun Age just in terms of the humor and things like that because I thought it's quite a short sharp story um and so there was a, there was a tiny bit of that in there but honestly being an editor um or being on the other side of being an editor now being an being an author I have found a new I have a newfound respect for my authors and the edits that they had to do right. because writing um writing editorial notes is one thing but actually having to like open the book out write the notes close it back up read it through three four times and also have people delete a bunch of stuff that you write um mm. in track changes is very humbling and um actually a lot harder than I realized you're listening to Ore Agbaje Williams on the Richard Krauss show her book the three of us is available now wherever fine books are sold well they say that the art of writing is in the rewriting but yeah, it doesn't make true. it any it doesn't make it any easier to do it <laughs> when you've worked on something for a year and then your editor says yeah 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 I liked about half of it yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I once had an editor of mine toss out a very long chapter that I'd spent about a month writing uh, because she felt that it gave away too much about this other thing that I was writing about. It hurt me at the time, but I realized later on that it probably did make the book better. Yeah, it's true. There were there were moments in there where both of my editors, God bless them, I love them to bits, but um, they would write <laughs> things like, um, can you make this funnier? And I'd be like, no, so just delete it. <laughs> like, <laughs> so can you up the tension? And I'd be like, where? <laughs> Tell me where. <laughs> but well, um, no, that's, that's, what, that's what they're good at. That's their job. And they were fantastic at it. So very grateful for them. There are some really interesting quotes from the book that I wanted to just run past you and let's, you know, let's talk about them a little bit. <laughs> uh, doubt and truth are so close that it's sometimes impossible to tell them apart. Um, it just made me think about when you when you decide that something is true and then the moment you assign truth to it, there's the idea that what if it isn't true? And what if actually the idea that I've given myself or something that I've been told actually, you know, maybe there's a, a crack of um, untruth in there or there's something mm -hmm. that I haven't really explored. Um, and I just thought about how that applies to our relationships with people and um, what we believe that they say to us and what we believe about them and that we can believe they're one thing until maybe there's something that they do that shows us that they're different. And we're like, suddenly this whole fact that I believed is suddenly feels like it's completely untrue. And I, everything I believe about this person is suddenly unraveling. Um, and I just thought that that was really interesting in terms of all three of them, because they have particularly the husband and the best friend, they have this one perception of the wife that they both believe is true. And the moment the other person enters the picture, it suddenly calls into question everything that they believe about her. 
There's another quote here, and I love it. It's it's I won't read the whole quote because it's quite long, but you're describing uh what rich people do with their moisturizers and uh things in their bathrooms, right? So they have the the nice containers that are out yeah. for display, but they're filled with stuff from Tesco, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> So to, that I thought was just so sort of keenly observed. Uh, and and do you have little moments like that? When I read them, sometimes I think that the author, you must have seen that somewhere and maybe you just tucked it away in the back of your head and it's just been waiting to come out in print somewhere. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Really? Um, yeah. I think I have, I think there's an aunt of mine who does that um, and maybe some friends of mine who do that. They, they said they said to me, I think I went to her house a while ago and she said to me, I was like, oh, this is really nice. And she was like, yeah, it's not what you think is in there anymore. We just replaced it because it's way too expensive to buy it regularly. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that you do that. <laughs> At least they're not doing it with the wine. That's yeah. a really bad idea with wine. Yeah. <laughs> you can get away with it with moisturizer and that sort of thing. <laughs> Are you working on something now? Something I am. I am. Um, and I didn't believe that. I mean, people say I shouldn't say this so much, but I didn't believe the second book syndrome was real until um, I experienced it. It's yeah. very real. Um, yeah. I'm on the other side of it now, um, but it took me a good four months or so to get through it. Um, but I'm grateful that I'm on the other side. Um, and yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a second book, but it's not a sequel because people keep saying the mm. end is reopening. Are you writing a sequel? And I was like, no, I think I've heard enough from the three of those people. So I think it's time to write something different. It's it's really hard. And especially when you think, oh, this book has been really good. And I really like this book now that I've done all this work on it. Um, and I feel like I have to replicate that. And I think that's the problem that I had with starting book two is I was trying to replicate and you just cannot replicate. It's impossible. So trying to undo that thinking in my head was really hard and took a long time. <laughs> that was Ore Agbaje Williams on The Richard Krauss Show. Her new novel, The Three of Us, is available wherever fine books are sold. And it's a really interesting story told in a really interesting way, kind of from three different perspectives, a husband, a wife, and her best friend, all looking at the same events, but through a slightly different lens. It's a fascinating story told as I say, in a really interesting way, and it happens over the course of one day, very skillfully written. My guest in this segment is author Joy Fielding. The New York Times bestselling author was once called an ingenious master of domestic suspense. She's back with a new book. She's here to talk about her novel, The Housekeeper. It's a suspenseful story about a woman who hires a housekeeper to care for her aging parents, only to watch as the housekeeper takes over their lives. In this interview, we talk about how Joy creates the characters that populate her books and how she keeps the ideas coming after writing 30 books. Joy Fielding, join me via Zoom. Let's talk about elder care. It is uh, a hot topic the, these days. Was the idea for this story kind of ripped from the headlines in a way? It's so funny because I honestly had no idea I was writing a book about elder care when I started. Um, it is it's really funny how how all the you know how novels how ideas develop i i really just started out i thought i'm going to write kind of a fun little story uh, and it, it was really kind of triggered by a, a young woman i know who's uh her mother had recently died and her father remarried a woman within like a couple of months mm. uh, that, um, that that they knew, a, a woman they knew nothing about and, and uh, who, whether 
on purpose or inadvertently uh, succeeded in kind of alienating him from the rest of his family. And I thought, so that's kind of was the genesis of that idea. I thought it'd be very interesting to have kind of a predatory female come into this uh, otherwise normal family and, and see what would happen. So I then developed the, the main character and I thought, okay, what's her family all about? And I, um, and I thought, okay, I didn't want to do kind of a, a young woman whose father had remarried. I wanted to get away from that completely. So I decided to have, you know, sort of a certified member of the sam the so-called sandwich generation, you know, a woman who's busy looking after her husband and children on the one hand and her elderly parents on the other hand. And I decided to, you know, complicate things a little more and, and give the mother uh, Parkinson's, you know, advanced Parkinson's disease and have have Jody, the heroine, have a, a rather difficult relationship with her fa her birth family anyway, and then sort of a a demanding marriage and these two young children, you know, as many complications as I could throw in there uh, without kind of overwhelming the story. And it wasn't until I was really into the story that uh, that I realized that that really the whole issue of elder care was was even part of the story. You know, it was not something, I, though I'd love to take credit for it. It really didn't even occur to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Joy Fielding on The Richard Krause Show. Her new book, The Housekeeper, is available wherever you buy fine books. When you are writing a novel like this that has twists and unexpected things that happen, um, they have to feel believable to keep the reader engaged. So how do you craft a, a, a twist that actually works on the page? Oh, you know, I've never been asked that before. And that's a really interesting question. Um, and I wish I had an answer. Um, I, uh, I think part of it is just the way my mind works. And I really don't think about it that much. I'm, I'm just pretty good at it naturally. Uh, so I can't really take credit. But um, I think it's always been my feeling that if you believe in a character, you will follow that character anywhere. So it doesn't matter if you have a story where a space a spaceship, you know, lands in your backyard and and your very modern day uh, heroine just enters the spaceship and takes <laughs> off. If if I have created a believable character, you'll go with me into that spaceship. Well, you have, uh, I don't know how many books, but there's a 30, lot of books, 30. 30 books. So you are very prolific. Has the process of writing gotten easier for you over that time? Uh, yes and no. Um, it's it's gotten easier in uh, the sense that I'm not as angst-ridden as I used to be. You know, I, I used to finish a book and think, oh my God, I'll never get another idea. What am I going to do? My life is ruined, you know, all that now uh, I figure, you know, I've had 30 ideas. The odds are I'm going to have another one. So I don't get too upset. Um, I'm a little, as I said, some books are, are easier than others. Some books just are, are gifts. They're just mm -hmm. like, here it is, just do it. And, <laughs> and, and The Housekeeper was one of those books. Um, Still Life was another one. You know, I've had a few where they just emerge. I just sort of let my fingers do the, the walking, as they right. say. Uh, and then others are like pulling teeth. Others are really hard. You know, you've got a good idea, but the structure is really hard to get at. 
I find I make the same mistakes over and over again. You know, you think you'd learn, you don't. <laughs> so uh, it, it's like, you know, I just, what, what's getting a little harder now is, is that I don't, like when I'm thinking of an idea for like my next book and I, I, I think of something, I think like something, as you say, ripped from the headlines. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't want to spend the next year being angry. I don't want to spend the next year being upset. So there are ideas now that I'm kind of shying away from, even though I know they're ripe for the picking, you know, but I just don't want to be angry anymore. I've been angry for two and a half years, basically, with this stupid pandemic. So, you know, as I, as I said once somewhere, like I'm, I'm two seconds from fury at any <laughs> given moment. So uh, I, I just don't want to spend hours every day being upset. And yet, you know, nobody wants to read something that's all just happy, happy, happy. So, you know, I've got to do something with drama. And, and so that's maybe getting a little harder. The process is a little easier. I, I, I know what I'm doing a little better. Well, you've been coming up with story ideas uh, for your entire life. At the age of eight, you wrote a story, uh, sent it to a local magazine. At 12, you sent in a TV script and trying to get it produced. Do you remember uh, anything about that story or that TV script? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, and I'm amazed I sent it in. Yeah. Um, but, oh, yes, I wrote it out in longhand. I, I think I even sent it in in longhand. And um, it was about a 12-year-old girl who murders her parents. And <laughs> <laughs> so like my mother said it could cause them many a sleepless night. That's right. <laughs> you know, she said she would lie in bed beside my father and give her, she'd look, she'd look over at him and say, what do you suppose she's thinking? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I I always had, you know, an imagination and it was always something, I was always making up stories and stuff like that. I, again, I think it's just something you're born with. I, I, I can't really take credit for it. I can take credit for the discipline and, and, and knowing what to do with it, but the DNA, interest and talent, I suppose, is just something I, I have. That was Joy Fielding on The Richard Krauss Show. Find her book, The Housekeeper, wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks goes to Joy for joining us today. She's been on the show a lot of times. She's always fascinating. Also, a big thanks to Ore Agbaje-Williams, uh, who joined us from London, England, to talk about her book, The Three of Us, which is also available now wherever fine books are sold. Uh, check that one out. It's a really interesting book that is told in a really interesting perspective from three different people telling essentially the same series of events, but from slightly different perspectives. It's interesting stuff, takes place over the course of one day. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's called The Three of Us, available now wherever you buy fine books. Also, a big thanks to Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton. Uh, check out their album, Death Wish Blues, which is available wherever you buy fine music. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon.